Welcome to the Dead Good Staffordshire podcast. These podcasts have been created for Dying Matters Awareness Week. You'll get a new podcast every day this week talking about all sorts of different things to do with Dying Matters. Now, every minute someone in the UK dies, but many of us still do not feel comfortable talking about dying. Talking more openly about dying can help you to make the most of life and to support loved ones. We want people to actively make plans for themselves, share them with friends and family, support the bereaved and offer support and help to those who may need it. People shouldn't be afraid to ask for help or to offer help. Communities are growing larger and more varied and all can be affected by death and loss. So in between the 14th and 20th of May 2018, during Dying Matters Awareness Week, there are lots of activities taking place across Staffordshire to encourage you to talk about death and dying to help you think what can you do to be more active in planning for your future talking about death and dying won't make it happen but asking what can you do and taking a few small actions can reassure you and your loved ones about the future Hello, welcome to today's episode of Dead Good Staffordshire podcast. Today, it's not necessarily a squeamish episode, but we are talking about post-mortem examinations or autopsies. Same thing, just a different words to use them. And yes, we are talking about what happens during uh, those examinations, what happens to your body after you die, when a coroner or maybe the police need to know a little bit more about what happened to, uh, to, to make you die. I promise there's no blood, no, there's no dead bodies, but it is a fascinating experience because I went to the Medical Institute in Hearts Hill and I watched a virtual autopsy or living autopsy as it's also known like i say there's no blood there's no guts there's no gore but it was fascinating now over 95 percent of postmortems in this country are done for the coroner they're done to establish why somebody has died. So the coroner's job is to find out who died, so make sure they got the identification right, um, when they died and how they died. And that's where the My name is Dr Susie Lishman and I am a consultant histopathologist at Peterborough City Hospital. So what does that actually mean then? Well, as a histopathologist, I specialise in examining tissue under the microscope. And so the vast majority of my day is spent looking at tissue that's removed from people in the clinic, in the operating theatre. So if you have a mole removed, or if you have uh, an endoscopy, a telescope put down into your throat or your gut and a small biopsy, all the way up to having a whole organ removed, if you have a kidney out, or if you have your breast removed for cancer, they get sent to the pathology lab. And I will look at them first just with my eyes to see 
uh, which bits I need to look at under the microscope. And then I look at microscope slides. And so I can tell at a cellular level what's happening in the person. And I can make diagnoses like cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, infections like TB and things like that. So that's really what I do. A small part of my job involves doing post-mortem examinations. It's only about 5% of my time. It's actually a relatively small part. I spend uh, two or three hours a week doing post-mortems to find out um, why people have died. Does everybody think that's all you do though? Yes, they think it's all I do. And in fact, I mean, I'm a, a hospital pathologist. So All of my work is done in the hospital. People often think I'm a forensic pathologist working for the Home Office and that I spend my nights crawling through muddy ditches and things looking for murderers. Uh, And that's not what I do at all. So that's what you do, but pathology itself is quite a wide spectrum. So pathology is actually made up of about 20 different specialties. Um, So histopathology is the biggest one, and that's subdivided into different types because increasingly now we specialise in an area. So you may become a dermatopathologist, so so histopathology specialises in diseases of the skin, um, or a paediatric pathologist where you specialise in diseases of babies and children, or neuropathology when you're looking at the brain and, and spinal cord. And then there are completely separate pathology disciplines. Um, And the biggest ones are haematology, the study of the blood. So that would be things like anemia and leukemias. Uh, Microbiology, the study of infective organisms like bacteria and viruses and parasites. Clinical biochemistry, which measures the level of chemicals in your blood. So it can tell if your organs are functioning, if your kidney is excreting things normally, or if your heart is working properly. And then there are Many other pathology disciplines, things like toxicology, looking for drugs, immunology, the work of the immune system, genetics, looking at the molecular level that causes disease, and so on. So it's a really diverse and broad range of different disciplines. What qualifications do you need to be a pathologist and how long does it take? Uh, So to be a pathologist like me, you have to be a doctor first. So you'll spend five or six years at medical school. I, I did six. And then you do your foundation training as a junior doctor. That's two years where you rotate through medical and surgical specialties and you really consolidate the basics of the medical information that you've learned uh, at university. After that, you can then start to apply for your specialist training. And hopefully by that stage, you know what it is you want to do. And so I chose to go then straight into training to be a histopathologist. And that for me took five and a half years. It can often take longer if you want to do some research along the way people often take out a year or even three years to do a PhD and so you can see if you add all of that together we're probably looking at 12 to 15 years before you're a fully qualified specialist and ready to take up a consultant job. That's a long time. It is I'm pleased to say that after the first six years as a student you do actually start earning so um, you you haven't got the world's largest student loan um, although six years as a a student is pretty expensive. (laughs) What was it about pathology that drew you to it? Yes, it's not something that I'd always intended to do. In fact, um, as a medical student, I was particularly keen on obstetrics and gynaecology. I loved delivering babies. But then as I started to work as a doctor, it became very clear that uh, it's not the consultant obstetrician who gets to deliver all the healthy babies. They only get called in when something goes wrong. Um, And um, I found doing medicine and surgery I was just curious to learn more about why people were ill. I didn't just want to learn 
what drug to give or what operation to do. I wanted to understand a bit more about the basics of why do people develop an illness and why do they respond in the way that they do. And pathology for me seemed to be the discipline that gives those answers. APTs will already have weighed and measured the body for me, so we'll calculate a BMI, which gives us a, an idea of the, the person's body mass index. Um, and then I have a look. I look for distinguishing marks, so I have a look for any tattoos. Uh, I look for scars, very helpful, both in identifying the person if ever a problem arises, but also in giving me some clues as to How important are post-mortem examinations in general? So people often think that post-mortem examinations really haven't got much value these days because we have so many investigations before we die. So it would be unusual for somebody in hospital not to have blood tests, scans, x-rays and things like that. And it's often thought that actually they give all of the answers. But all the research all around the world has demonstrated that that is not the case, that post-mortems routinely identify significant disease that would have made a difference to the way in which that person was treated in probably 20 to 25 percent of cases so a quarter of people the cause of death is not really known before they die even if they're being treated for a disease in hospital so post-mortems are vitally important for actually getting the cause of death right and why does that matter well you would think once a person's dead does it actually matter why they've died well firstly they're grieving family it helps them to understand what's happened to that person it will go down in family history as that's what the person died from. When you're asked for your family history, you'll often say what happened to your parents or grandparents. So that's important for it to be right. Um, but also some diseases have implications for other members of the family. Um, so you may have a disease that has a genetic component and it may be that other members of the family need to be screened for that and there's a way of preventing them from dying at a young age. But there are also broader benefits of doing the post-mortem. The next most obvious is for the benefit of the doctors and the clinical team who've looked after that patient. They will get feedback about um, what the patient died from and perhaps the extent of any response to treatment that they've been given. So if they've been given a certain drug, particularly if they're taking part in a research trial, trying a new drug or surgery, then it means that doctors can learn about the response uh, and perhaps that particular individual didn't respond at all or perhaps they did and it was something else that was the cause of their death. And then looking at the broader benefit, knowing the cause of death accurately helps us to have reliable statistics on which to base investment in health. So when health policies are made by politicians, they know what the leading causes of death are in the country and where we're best to try to uh, focus things like education, screening and things that will prevent people from developing those diseases um, rather than focusing the money on an area where it doesn't cause very many deaths at all. So what are the common causes of death that are identified by an autopsy? The most common causes of death that we see in routine autopsies are things relating to the heart, to the brain and to the lungs. It's really the cardiovascular and respiratory systems um, that are our leading causes of death. And then the, the other big one is cancer. Um, and as people get older and live for longer, they're more likely to develop cancers. And so we're seeing more of those nowadays. But heart disease, stroke, pneumonia um, and cancer are really the big ones that we see. You mentioned a lot while you're doing the demonstration about the level of care and respect that you give the bodies that you're doing the, the autopsies on. How important is that? 
that's vitally important to me. I think it's one of the most important things and one of the things that I um, always stress when I'm teaching uh, young pathologists. We never forget that the body that we're examining is somebody's loved one, that this was a real person, uh, that they had a life and that somebody cares about what happens to them. And that's one of the incentives that we have for doing a good accurate post-mortem is to get those answers for the family but we always treat the deceased with dignity and respect it's not like a carry-on film or the sort of thing you might see on television what was it like training and then performing your first autopsy were you were you nervous were you scared um i would say i was nervous not scared so much but um nervous because it's something new and doing something like that for the first time uh you know it is quite a big step but examining a dead body was not something that um was particularly new to me so i had um, dissected a dead body when I was a medical student to learn about anatomy and then I'd been to post-mortem demonstrations to learn about causes of death and pathology. As a junior doctor I'd assisted at surgical operations so I'd seen inside the body uh, and was used to seeing the internal organs and so it's really a stepwise progression and you get increasingly used to seeing the human body and you learn about all of the anatomy um, and the relationships of the different organs. Um, and so, yes, I was nervous. Putting my scalpel to the skin for the first time of my first post-mortem is something I will never forget. Um, but it was also exciting, um, and it was the start of a very fulfilling and fascinating career for me. So it was a, a high point. You've developed National Pathology Week. What is that? What does it involve? So about 10 years ago, um, I realised that I knew quite a few pathologists who, like me, were going out to schools and talking to pupils about pathology and health. Uh, a, a lot of pathologists would go to their children's schools and talk on careers days and things like that. And I thought there was an opportunity to pull all of these together and perhaps focus on a single week. And so I chose a week in November to try to avoid exam times and, and holidays and things like that and named it National Pathology Week and encouraged pathologists around the country to volunteer to go out to schools or to open the doors of their lab and do a lab tour. Um, and initially, we thought if we had about 30 of these around the country, then that would be great. It would be a really good start. In the end, there were over 300 events took place in that first year. And the feedback was fabulous, both from the public, who were really interested, and from the school children who found it fascinating. But very interestingly, also from the pathologists, they loved it. They felt that they were reinvigorated they were excited about their specialty explaining it to somebody else outside pathology actually reminded them of why they went into pathology in the first place it was also great for team building because pathology is so many different specialties in big hospitals particularly the staff often don't meet each other um, but actually getting together for national pathology week and working together as a team has been brilliant for team building and for morale so it was just hugely popular so it had started off as a one-off event but it went down so well that we decided to hold it every year and now 10 years later we've held over 4,000 events and, and going from strength to strength. Why do you think people have a fascination with the autopsy side of dying but let's, and death, but talking about their own death is so difficult? Oh, that's a, that's a difficult question. Certainly, I found that people are fascinated by the autopsy. Um, and maybe holding events like this, it just gives people permission to think about death 
um, often people will come and talk to me after an autopsy and say that their loved one, perhaps a parent, had an autopsy and they'd never understood what it involved. Somebody even once said they'd felt really guilty for many years because they'd allowed their mother to have an autopsy. And after seeing um, my living autopsy event, they said they felt like it was a huge weight off their shoulder because they realised it was a, a dignified and a clinical medical procedure and it wasn't something that their... Um, that they should have tried to stop. So I think people are fascinated um, and they just enjoy the opportunity to come along and learn more. I think perhaps because it has a slightly scientific educational role, it perhaps makes it a bit easier for people to come along and think about it rather than focusing on uh, feelings and emotions uh, and actually coming to terms with your own mortality. But I think it's inevitable that people who come to these events will do that. Um, it's very difficult not to go away thinking about what am I doing to the inside of my body? I wonder what my liver looks like. Um, and uh, hopefully it will um, set off a few questions and discussions around dinner tables this evening. That was exactly my response. I was sitting there thinking, gosh, I wonder what my heart looks like. And then you showed a picture of the city living lungs. And I was thinking, wow, I didn't, I, I've never smoked. I've never yet. I bet my lungs aren't as clean as I think they are. No, well, if you've ever been on the tube in London and blown your nose afterwards, uh, that black stuff that comes out, that's what's going into your lungs when you're exposed to pollution, uh, to traffic. Um, and so we all have a bit of that black stuff in our lungs, I'm afraid. As a career then, if someone wanted to get involved in pathology, what would they need to do? Where should they start? So um, certainly for me, my interest in medicine started very early. I've, fortunately, I came from a medical household, so it was always in my mind that this is something I might like to do. Um, well, to get into medical school is really competitive these days, and so you need to make sure you get the right GCSEs and the right A-levels. It's really hard work. There's no getting away from it, um, and there are hurdles along the way that are really tough. The postgraduate exams you take uh, to get your fellowship of the Royal College of Pathologists are also really hard. Um, people complain about how hard they are until they pass them. Once they've passed them, they think they were at just the right level, um, but they need to be... Uh, as searching as they are to make sure that we have high quality pathologists who are out there doing the best for patients. So I think if people are interested in pathology, look out for opportunities to learn more. Come along to events like this. Look out for Dying Matters Week next year um, and see if there are things that you can learn. Perhaps see if you can volunteer. Um, there may be some job opportunities, some work experience opportunities in your local pathology lab. Um, but um, do but don't forget the extracurricular activities still have fun it's great to have a hobby because it's so tough getting through medical school and the postgraduate training it's so important to have other th other things in your life uh, apart from your studies so I'd encourage you not only to work hard but to play hard as well play a sport don't stop learning that instrument um, get out and do something fun because it's really important to be able to take your mind off it every so often